Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Connecticut families are grieving after more than 4,200 residents have died from COVID-19. Coming up, Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano shares his story about how the coronavirus has changed the ways we memorialize and mourn the dead. First, tomorrow, June 17th, marks the day Connecticut's reopening continues with its Phase 2 plan. Coming up, we hear from Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin about what he'd like to see in his city in terms of testing and contact tracing. Before we get to that, I want to welcome to the show Josh Jabal. You know his face by now if you've been watching the many governor's briefings. Jabal is the state's chief operating officer. He's also the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Administrative Services. But over the last three months, much of his time has been focused on helping Governor Lamont and the state respond to COVID-19. Do you have a question for Josh Jabal as more of Connecticut begins to reopen tomorrow? Here's the number to call in, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Josh Jabal is joining us via Zoom today. Uh, Welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So tomorrow, uh, phase two begins. This was moved up uh, by a few days from June 20th. Remind us again uh, why the governor and his team felt that this is the time to begin uh, phase two reopening. Sure. Well, um, you know, as uh, I think most folks are aware, uh, several uh, weeks or even a couple months ago now, I think the governor laid out a a phased reopening for the state, um, recognizing that the actions that we took to mitigate the spread of COVID, you know, starting in March were, were very aggressive, and, but they worked. Uh, we bent the curve. Um, you know, we've gotten the metrics going in a much better direction, but it came at an enormous cost, obviously, both in terms of the human toll that you quoted, but also the economic toll. And so we wanted to um, reopen in a very kind of thoughtful, phased fashion so that at each step we could evaluate the impact of the prior step with sufficient amount of time that, you know, that impact could be measured uh, quantitatively in the metrics and decide if we had done the right things and, and, and that we could move to the next step. So we determined with our uh, public health and, and medical experts that about four weeks in between phases was probably the right amount of time to measure the impacts. And so now it's four weeks since uh, phase one. Um, I think if people recall back four weeks ago, there was nervousness, right? As we started to reopen some activities, outdoor dining, uh, non-essential retail, And a lot of people expected we would see cases go up and we would see hospitalizations go up off of phase one. But fortunately, uh, they've continued to go down uh, and they've gone in in a very positive direction. And so that gives uh, the governor a lot of confidence that we are prepared to move to phase two. Hmm. You talked about medical and public health experts as well as uh, people in the business community. Can you give a, a better idea to our listeners about you know, who is gathering this information for you and, and Governor Lamont and the rest of the team to feel comfortable that tomorrow does make sense uh, to start phase two? Could you give more specifics on, on who the people are that are gathering that information for you? 
Sure. Well, all of the data that we publish, um, you know, every day we put out a, a metrics package um, that, that's all produced by our State Department of Public Health. Um, so the epidemiology department in particular is collecting data from a, a wide variety of sources. Um, you know, the case data, both positive and negative test results, for example, uh, you know, comes in through a, uh, a pretty elaborate reporting system where all labs have to report that data. We get data from the Connecticut Hospital Association reporting on hospitalizations. And so it's all, it's all coming in through the, the state DPH. Um, but as I think folks are aware, the governor, you know, likes to consult with a wide range of experts on important and complex topics. And so we did bring in some additional experts as part of the reopen advisory group. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Albert Coe from, from Yale was a key leader in that uh, effort from a scientific perspective. Um, but there were many others and, um, you know, certainly consulted with, uh, with a wide range of people on, you know, what were the right benchmarks and metrics. And, and, and now as we kind of look at the metrics in terms of where we stand today, um, that, uh, give us confidence to move forward. You can join our conversation with Josh Jabal. Again, he's Chief Operating Officer of the State of Connecticut. Tomorrow, uh, Phase 2 of Connecticut's reopening plans uh, begins. This is much of Connecticut's com economy that's starting to open back up. If you have a question about the reopening, again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So tell us, uh, June 17th, does that put Connecticut ahead of neighboring states, Josh? Uh, the reason I ask is in the beginning, there was emphasis on making sure that uh, Connecticut was collaborating with our neighboring states to make it more of a regional approach uh, to help deal with community transmission. But I'm just wondering now that Connecticut's uh, rolling out phase two, are we ahead of our neighbors? Um, you know, it's a great question, uh, Lucy. And, and the answer is it's complicated. Um, you know, there's certain uh, areas where, where we'll be a little bit ahead. Um, there's certain areas where we're, we're behind. Um, in terms of group sizes and different industries that are opening with different capacity limitations. But I think overall what you've seen is that, um, you know, our, uh, we've been moving um, in, in pretty good coordination with our neighboring states, you know, recognizing that we are a small state and that our borders are, are close in every direction and that um, having significant different approaches uh, with our neighboring states can create, uh, you know, challenges and risks. So overall, we're, we're moving pretty well together. I think, you know, overall, though, it is worth noting that even as we shut down, uh, you know, going into the crisis, uh, Governor Lamont made some some decisions to keep larger sectors of the, the economy open uh, throughout. So, you know, many other states refer to their phase one as opening uh, manufacturing, um, you know, as opening uh, construction, for example. We, we never closed those sectors down, uh, the governor felt that was an appropriate approach and I think the results um, uh, you know bear that out um, but uh, you know as we look at other industries now restaurants retail um, you know other uh, personal services I think overall our neighboring states were moving in a, in a similar fashion particularly with regards to Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Hmm. Again, you'll, we're talking with Josh Jabal, and I'd like to take some listener calls in just a, a few minutes. Uh, but I'm just wondering, uh, because the state has this contract with Boston Consulting Group, again, uh, they're helping collaborate with other neighboring states. Could you tell us more about how Boston Consulting Group is helping you gather information from these neighboring states, um, helping you decide what the strategy is, per se? Sure. And, and thanks for bringing that up. Um, you know, as, as uh, you know, you mentioned, we, we brought in Boston Consulting Group to help us, um, you know, several weeks ago, just recognizing the sheer complexity and the amount of work that was going to need to be done to implement a phase reopening and to do it thoughtfully. Um, uh, and so, 
you know, the state is, um, you know, everybody who works for the state has been working exceptionally hard, you know, involved in the COVID response. And, but, you know, speed was important here. So having some extra arms and legs to help us do analysis, um, put together presentations, um, you know, I think folks, if they've gone on our website, if they've looked at the level of quality and the detail that we've put together in our reports, in our detailed reopening strategy uh, guidelines for each industry, um, you know, which is been recognized as, as nationally leading in terms of the quality and, and the detail that's included in there. Um, you know, that hasn't happened by accident. That's happened with some with some quality assistance. And then, as you mentioned as well, one of the other benefits of working with them and that they're working with New York and Massachusetts and Rhode Island and a number of other states is we are able to tap into best practices. You know, we don't have a monopoly in Connecticut on good ideas. And so, you know, having visibility quickly and easily into things that other people are doing that could be useful, uh, trying to stay aligned in areas that are important, um, they've been very helpful there as well. We're going to, to be talking about testing uh, coming up, but I did want to focus on tomorrow, June 17th. That means indoor dining, some gyms, hotels, libraries, movie theaters, even amusement parks will be able to reopen. So, Josh, what will the administration be watching out for in this rollout? Because we're seeing already in other states that are ahead of us in reopening, like Florida and North Carolina, the rates of COVID-19, the cases are growing, and that's problematic. And people here are also worried about what happens if there's a spike yes we are we are very concerned about that and we will be watching this very carefully going forward um, you know the specific metrics that you know i think we want to keep a close eye on um, are some that hopefully have become very familiar to people at this point you know our testing results in particular as we continue to increase the amount of testing we're doing the, the positivity rate um, you know, the number of tests that we perform that, that where people test positive, um, that's been declining um, very steadily, even as we've been increasing testing. Um, so that's good. We're down around two and a half percent over the last seven days on a rolling average. So we want to see that stay low. Um, uh, equally, hospitalizations is a really key metric for us. Um, we know that even with the best testing regime out there, you'll never convince every single person to come out and get tested. And in fact, there is asymptomatic uh, many asymptomatic people out there. Um, and so ultimately, people who present at an acute care hospital is the real kind of acid test of, you know, what the viral activity is in the community. So wanting to see uh, hospitalizations, you know, stay in a very manageable uh, low area. And then we're doing other things, new programs that we're setting up that have never been done before, a, a statewide contact tracing uh, pro program uh, that will help us uh, quickly get out in front of uh, new cases, uh, trace their contacts, and encourage people to self-isolate and quarantine to slow the spread. Um, and then we're looking at some other kind of, uh, you know, a little more groundbreaking approaches as well. There's been some studies that we're looking into around uh, wastewater uh, surveillance, uh, where you can, there's some data and some studies that have been done that indicate that if you monitor wastewater um, at, at sewage treatment plants, for example, you can start to actually detect uh, COVID, uh, the, the COVID virus um, in wastewater um, before people will even know that the, the virus is spreading or that they start to present with symptoms. So we're, we're kind of looking at a wide variety of different approaches to have good headlights uh, into the progression of the virus in the state as we continue to reopen. Mm. Mike's calling from Avon. Mike, you're on the show. What's your question? Uh, my question is if there's any uh, take on pooled testing being done in Connecticut at this point. So instead of just taking an individual test, taking 10 to 20 swabs and putting them in the vial, and this way at least you uncover whether somebody has it. 
so, so Mike uh, has has been paying attention to the science here, and it's a great question, Mike. And, you, and yes, we are we are looking at that. We've actually have multiple calls a week where we are looking at a variety of, of scientific approaches to enhance our, our testing programs. Um, pooling is one of them. So, so to translate a, a, maybe in layman's terms, the concept is that when you have very low infection rates like we do today, the vast majority of the samples we're taking are negative. We know that. And so rather than have to run all of the samples individually and the time and the cost associated with that, you can actually pool multiple samples, 10 or 20 samples into the same assay uh, run that once. And then if the assay comes back negative, you know, all 10 or 20 of those samples were in fact negative rather than having to test them individually. So you can ap appreciate the kind of efficiency and the cost uh, benefits of that model. And we are working to validate that. Um, another related approach is we're, we're, um, uh, we're, we're validating with a number of our labs here in the state, a saliva based sample. So rather than have to do the nasal swabs, um, uh, a saliva-based, you know, to layman's terms, again, you know, basically spit in the cup and use that as the sample to uh, to be able to run the diagnostic test, which just makes it easier and a little, maybe a little less scary for some people to, to get tested. And we want to just try to lower those barriers wherever we encounter them. And, and there might be a cost advantage there as well. Hmm. Uh, Kate on Twitter asks, why the shift in testing goals? Uh, you know, last month, the state said that the goal was to test about 100,000 uh, per week. Uh, now, um, the, I believe that you've said that that isn't the goal anymore. And she wants to know, how do we get everyone back to work and school without robust asymptomatic testing for all who want it? Sure. No, it's a great question. Thanks, Kate. Um, first of all, I think it's worth underscoring that, that we are already, as we sit here today, you know, among the top 10 states in the nation in terms of testing per capita, just looking at what we've actually done over the last seven days. Um, and with that, we do have plans to continue to grow our, our testing coverage. And we can talk more about the strategy around that if, if we have time. But, you know, the, the goal that, that is being referenced was established about six weeks ago. Um, and, you know, six weeks in, in COVID time is an eternity. And, you know, as scientists learn more about the virus and, and what approaches are most effective to detect it, um, we've received a lot of new guidance from the CDC um, since then. We've collected a lot of new intelligence just in Connecticut. Uh, some of the initial point prevalence studies that we've done and learned about what's effective and, and what's not effective. And then candidly, there's the, there's the financial realities of this as well. Um, testing is not free, um, and we know we're going to be testing for quite some time to come until we can really put COVID behind us. And so having a testing strategy that's both aligned with the public health team's view of, of what's most effective to minimize the public health risk, as well as kind of long-term financial sustainability of a testing protocol, are both important factors. And so, you know, with those in mind, as we've evolved here, uh, we were adjust the goals and we'll continue to adjust them as we learn more. Mm. There's a lot that's still unknown about asymptomatic uh, carriers. Uh, we've talked about this and, and many others about, you know, statisticians saying the way to truly get a handle on how prevalent COVID-19 is across the population is doing a, a random sampling of tests uh, of residents and getting these tests. Is that a goal uh, in the future, Josh, if it's uh, right now you just want to focus on high risk populations? Yeah. So, um, and remember, there's two types of tests. There's the diagnostic test, um, often called the PCR-based test, which tells you whether you have COVID right now or not. And then there's the serology, the, the blood-based antibody test, which tells you if you've likely had COVID in the past. And so for the, for the latter, the serology-based antibody test, we actually are out in the field right now 
um, in partnership with Yale and Gallup and some others to do a randomized sample of the state of Connecticut to see how many people actually have had COVID-19 at this point in the epidemic. And so we expect to have those results back in the coming weeks. We'll publish those um, and share them uh, when they come in. And that will give us a snapshot uh, about how, how far the virus has progressed across the state at this point in time. And that is helpful in terms of informing strategies and modeling looking forward. In terms of the diagnostic test, in terms of how many people have it today, you know, there, there is an increasing view in the public health community that just completely randomized sampling is not, you know, the most efficient use of resources. Um, you do want to, and again, so back on our current testing strategy, which has not changed for weeks now, um, and just to summarize, because it's worth repeating and clarifying, first and foremost, we want anyone who has any symptoms uh, consistent with COVID-19, cough, fever, anything that might feel or look like the flu or a cold, to go get tested. Um, it's free. Go out, no questions asked. Um, you can, if you don't have a doctor's order, you can get one at the testing site. Um, please go out and get tested. That's most important for everybody all across the state. And then the the, the sister of that guidance is that if you are contacted uh, by a contact tracer or or someone who tests positive that you've been in close contact with during uh, a time they were infected, um, we want you to go get tested as well as a precaution. Um, beyond that, when you start talking about testing people who are healthy. Uh, or asymptomatic, um, the public health guidelines is really are really converging both federally and, and at the state level more and more towards focusing on high risk populations. And so mm -hmm. those concentrate around congregate facilities and people who are high risk in those facilities. So nursing homes, assisted living facilities, uh, prisons, uh, those are areas where we're really focused for repeat repetitive testing of healthy people. And then also in our cities, right? And I know the mayor of Hartford, uh, Mayor Bronin's coming on next. Um, we're really focusing on increasing the repetitive testing of healthy people in our cities as well. We've done analysis that looks at the census track level of where across Connecticut we've seen the greatest impacts of COVID so far. And it really correlates to both population density, uh, number of people per square mile uh, living in, in close proximity, as well as poverty. Um, and those two factors have really driven a very targeted approach that uh, focuses us in on additional resources we want to dedicate and invest from the state perspective into our federally qualified health centers and other community outreach to get more testing into those communities. Mm. And before we head to break, Josh, you mentioned the importance of testing in congregate uh, situations. You mentioned prisons and nursing homes. Uh, Kathy on Twitter wants to know if the state will apply those uh, same considerations to residential care homes and facilities with related to departments of uh, DDS, uh, Developmental Services, and DMIS. Uh, and how are you looking at, at those uh, residents and those living situations? Yes, it likely will. I mean, we have been doing testing in those larger congregate uh, state facilities um, as well. And, and, and that's something that we're continuing to discuss with those agency heads and the public health teams. I think you will see continued asymptomatic testing there as well. You're hearing Josh Jabal again. He's Chief Operating Officer of the State of Connecticut, also Commissioner of the Department of Administrative Services as we talk about testing and also uh, Connecticut's economy opening up some more tomorrow. Uh, phase two begins. Coming up, uh, Hartford County has almost as many COVID-19 cases as hard-hit Fairfield County. Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin joins us to talk about what he'd like to see in terms of testing in the capital city. Now, do you have questions about testing in Connecticut or even phase two reopening? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tomorrow, Connecticut's reopening moves forward with Phase 2. That means you can find a restaurant that serves food indoors. You could head to the gym, even go to the movies again. We just heard from Josh Jabal, again, the state's chief operating officer, about uh, testing uh, moving forward, uh, focusing on high-risk populations, including nursing homes, prisons, and people that live in cities. We wanted to know how testing's looking in the city of Hartford. Joining us now on Zoom is Mayor Luke Bronin, who leads the city of Hartford. Mayor Bronin, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Good morning. And again, with us is Josh Jabal, Chief Operating Officer of the State uh, of Connecticut, also Commissioner of the Department of Administrative Services. Uh, So, uh, Mayor Bronin, uh, initially there was a huge testing shortage. Uh, Residents, we that call us and talk with our reporters, say that they're still unsure about where to go for testing or should they even get testing. Now it appears there's lots of testing available, but residents are still confused. You know, should they be getting a test? What are you seeing in your city? Thanks, Lucy. Uh, So our guidance to residents of the city of Hartford right now is really simple and clear, which is if you think you have any reason at all to get a test, you should get a test. And it is available. Uh, It's free. So you don't need to pay. You don't need insurance. You don't need a prescription. uh, You don't need to have symptoms. And you don't even need a ride because if you call 311, we'll give you a ride to this testing site. Uh, We have 10 permanent testing sites in the city of Hartford. And we also have mobile testing that's being done uh, throughout our neighborhoods. There's no question that nationally, uh, there was an enormous shortage of testing and a really slow start because of the problems with the national supply chain. I give the Lamont administration tremendous credit for ramping that up. And we've worked really, really hard to make sure that we have uh, as low a barrier as possible to getting tested in the city of Hartford. So those options are out there now, Mayor Bronin. How many of your residents are taking advantage of going out and getting tested? So we've had just about 10% of our residents get tested, uh, but we're not yet using all the testing capacity that's out there. So we really are encouraging people to go get tested. And it's particularly important, uh, as Josh said, in cities where we have seen uh, in Connecticut and across the country, uh, higher rates of transmission and also uh, more severe uh, consequences of getting the coronavirus. It, you know, it's, it's harder to effectively social distance in a, in a mm-hmm. city, especially when you're talking about the, the number of multi-generational living arrangements, uh, large apartment buildings. So it's really important to us that as many people as possible get tested so we can know and then support and isolate effectively, you know, those who are positive so we can reduce the spread. You mentioned 10% of your residents are getting tested. What do public health experts say in terms of your city's population? How many people should be getting tested, Mayor Bronin? Well, we'd like to get to a place where everybody is getting tested on a regular basis. As Josh said, certainly anybody who has any symptoms at all, we want to get tested. But I think that anybody who is uh, going back to work, anybody who is uh, in in places where they're coming into contact with significant numbers of people, I think they should go get tested, even if they don't have symptoms. Uh, The tests are available. Again, they're free. And uh, and I really think that if we want to be successful in this responsible reopening over the months to come, testing remains a critically important part of that. 
We know here in the state of Connecticut, more than 4,200 residents have died from COVID-19. I don't have the latest number in front of me uh, nationwide, but um, a majority of them are Black and Latino Americans. In Hartford, we know that these groups are disproportionately at risk of dying from COVID-19. So what are the barriers, again, that you're seeing among your residents that are keeping them from getting tested or the fact that they're, they're falling sick to begin with? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that's that reaches back to the early days of the pandemic when there were not enough tests available, when people who had severe symptoms could not get tests, not just in, in cities, but anywhere, anywhere around the state and, and anywhere around the country. And because of the shortage in testing, the CDC put in place some very restrictive guidelines on who could get a test. That changed as we ramped up testing capacity. But I think there was a lag in public's understanding of that change. So we've been trying uh, with a lot of different partnerships and a lot of different stakeholders to get the word out every way we can that those barriers that were there are no longer there. I I also think that there is some amount of uh, fear and uncertainty about certain things. I think some some people were concerned that they would have to pay for the test. And so we're repeating constantly that you, these tests are free. They're not free uh, to the insurance companies and they may not be free to the state. But if you go to get tested, the tests are free to you. And uh, so that's an important thing that we've been trying to share. The other piece is I think some people were just intimidated by the tests themselves and getting that swab of the nose. And there are a number of different types of tests up there, uh, which use different techniques. But uh, I've been tested uh, a couple of times now, and there's really nothing to fear about the test. There's nothing to worry about. And it's better to know than to not know. You know, that's the last piece. I think there may be some people who think, well, if I've got it and I'm not feeling all that bad, I don't want to know because I don't want to have to uh, isolate myself or quarantine for uh, a couple of weeks. And I think the important thing is to remember that it's not about you. It's not just about you. It's about your family. It's about your loved ones. It's about your coworkers. It's about your community as a whole. So it's better to know than to not know so that we can keep one another safe. You mentioned that social or physical distancing is difficult to do in a city, especially when uh, certain apartment buildings, you've got multiple members of families in there, and they don't have the luxury of being able to work from home uh, like you and I are able to. So I want to know more about as the state is reopening tomorrow, much of the economy is reopening. Are you fearful what that means for your residents, Mayor Bronin? As Josh said, uh, there's been quite a bit of our economy that's been open for a while now, even, even prior to the phase one, but certainly in phase one. I think that the most important thing is to remind people that the basic precautions are still the most important. You know, wearing a mask really, really matters. There have been some studies that have come out recently that show uh, that if a significant per- portion of the population wears a mask on a regular basis, it has a huge effect on reducing transmission of the virus. So wear a mask. Uh, and it, again, it doesn't have to be a, a surgical mask. It doesn't have to be a fancy N95 mask. It can be a scarf or a bandana or a homemade cloth mask. Uh, I, uh, much of the time I've been wearing masks that my mom has made. Uh, but wearing a mask matters. Washing your hand matters. Paying attention to that six-foot distance matters. Those basic precautions are I- effective and they're more important than ever as we go into this reopening phase. So mm-hmm. uh, 
I'm sure we're all anxious about what the effect will be. And we all know there's a lag and we may not know for a while uh, what the effect of a full reopening has on the number of cases out there. But there are things that each of us can do. And those things really do make a difference. Josh Jabal, we just have a couple of minutes left. What can the state do better in terms of helping cities, helping people like Mayor Bronin get more of the residents tested for COVID-19? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd just like to compliment and thank Mayor Bronin. I mean, all the messages he just shared are so spot on, you know, particularly with regards to the mask wearing. There's there's more and more kind of peer-reviewed scientific journals coming out that indicate that that alone as minor an inconvenience as that is to people can have a massive impact. But to answer your question, Lucy, from the state perspective, um, you know, we are putting resources to work um, in these high-risk communities. Um, uh, the governor has set aside uh, $250 million of our coronavirus relief fund for testing and, and using that in a very strategic fashion, um, partnering with community-based health centers um, to uh, get into these communities where we want to get the testing numbers up, as the mayor said, uh, make it as easy as we possibly can for people. I mean, I think another factor here is that, you know, there's the psychology of this, which is that if I feel healthy, you know, I'm, I'm working a job or two jobs and I got kids, it's like, you know, I don't, I'd say, I don't, don't want to go get tested. So getting the tests as close to people, as easy for people to get to in these cities as we possibly can. The state is investing dollars into that effort. We're also partnering on some communications and some outreach, um, you know, into the communities to help underscore the messages that the mayor just shared and the importance of this to not just you as an individual, but to your, your family, to your community, and the, and the part that we all play together um, to contain this spread as, as we move forward with the reopening. Josh Jabal, again, as Chief Operating Officer of the State of Connecticut. Uh, Josh, thank you for joining us today on Where We Live. We appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Lucy. Thank you. Also with us was uh, Mayor Luke Bronin, who leads the city of Hartford. Mayor Bronin, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Lucy. Great to talk with you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today begins Connecticut Public Radio's short end of the year fiscal drive. We know news and long form interviews matter now more than ever. Please, please support where we live and WNPR. Here are two members of my team to tell you how. You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Tess Terrible. We're the two producers of Where We Live, and we're taking a few minutes of your time out of the program to ask you uh, for your financial support right now. Um, we we value bringing you uh, all the conversations we have on Where We Live each day, and it's something that we can't do without your financial support. Um, we're in a very strange time right now during the pandemic, and it's it's more important than ever for us to have your support uh, to bring you the great programming like where we live and all the programs you hear on Connecticut Public Radio. So if you uh, are, are in a position to make a pledge of support, the number to call is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online at wnpr.org slash donate. Yeah, it's been such an interesting time to work at this organization, Carmen. As you know, I, I just started working at Connecticut Public and joined the Where We Live team right before the pandemic hit. And what a time to join public radio. We've been able to have such great and integral conversations with not only the governor and a lot of public officials such as Commissioner Beth Bai on early childhood development and how children are being impacted by the by the pandemic, but a lot of listeners and a lot of 
individuals here living in Connecticut, residents here in Connecticut on how the pandemic is affecting their everyday life. And I am just so thankful to be able to work at this organization and do the work we do. So any support we can receive right now is good. We really value the work we're doing at Connecticut Public Radio. I, like you, Carmen, am working from my home. I'm here at West Hartford and doing this through Zoom. And the number to call is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go on to wnpr.org slash donate. Yeah, Tess, I think if I'm remembering correctly, I, I think your very first show as a producer here, we were like, maybe we should talk about this coronavirus thing. And then literally like, a week later, we were all working from home. I think uh, this pandemic is unlike anything any of us have seen and any of us really could have predicted. Um, and so it's been a really strange and interesting time to be working in news and working in public radio. But it's also been a time that I think I've been more thankful than ever to have public radio to turn to um, when there are so many questions about what's going on. And, and we're in a situation that that no one understands being able to hear from the experts, hear from policymakers and be in a position where you can call in and you can ask your question uh, to these people, um, policymakers, experts on where we live. Um, I, I think that is in many ways more important than ever in the middle of a pandemic and in the middle of a conversation nationwide around policing and, and racial injustice as well. Um, I think it's a really important forum to have where we can, you know, take time, have long form conversations um, and really get into the nuances of all of these issues. So if that's something that you value, um, something that you tune into Connecticut Public Radio for um, and you are in a financial position that you are able to make a pledge of support today, the number to call is 1-800-584-2788. And that's something we really pride ourselves on, Carmen, is giving our listeners access to these really important people that we're talking to. Um, we, we've been talking to Governor Ned Lamont almost every month, and we're really happy that we've been able to connect the governor and other public officials to the public and to our listeners and allow them to call in and ask their really important questions on not just only the pandemic, but what happens and what does an after COVID-19 new normal look like? And I think that's really important to us that we are able to connect the listeners and I hope it's important to you. So the number to call in is 1-800-584-2788. That's 1-800-584-2788. Me and Carmen are really happy that we've kind of found the new normal of producing the show at home and it's really been incredibly um, important to us that we can still keep bringing you this program. The number again, 1-800-584-2788 or go online at www.wnpr.org slash donate. Yeah, we do know this is a tough financial time for a lot of folks right now. Um, so we, we do understand that you may not be in a financial position right now to give. But if you are one of the people who is able to step up and support, your support uh, you know, is more important than ever. So the number to call, 1-800-584-2788. And thanks. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The pandemic has brought death much closer to everyday life for many people in Connecticut and around the world. But it's also had a big impact on how we memorialize and mourn the dead. Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano has this examination of death in the age of COVID-19. 
For the past four years, Deborah Halverson and sister Sue Sorella would visit their mom in a Stratford nursing home four to five times a week. My sister and I loved each other. We were partners, we were friends, and we thought we would see see it through together with mom and and then have time to do some traveling together and some of the things that we were, you know, just really too busy to do. If there's anything Halverson's learned from what she's been through the past couple of months, it's to not wait for someday to do things with someone you love. Sue Sorella died suddenly on March 10th, one day before the World Health Organization deemed the COVID-19 situation a pandemic. Sue's death was unrelated to coronavirus, but the virus would wreak havoc on Halverson's plans to memorialize her sister, and it would impact how she'd communicate with her mother, Betty Ann. They had already closed down the nursing homes at that time, so they let me come in to talk with her. I didn't want her wondering what had happened to Sue. I knew I wasn't going to be able to visit anymore. Meanwhile, in New Haven, Paul Bass was mourning the loss of his brother Robert. Bass is the editor of the New Haven Independent and a frequent guest on Connecticut Public Radio. I loved my brother. He was very good to me. He was five years older than I was. He gave up a lot growing up to take care of me because our mother died when we were very little. Bass says he's been prepared for Robert's death for a couple of years now. His brother had ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. He wasn't exactly prepared, though, for what had happened afterward. He knew he wanted to do right by Robert and give him a proper Jewish send-off, which requires a prompt burial. It would take place in a cemetery in Westchester County, New York. Under normal circumstances, we would have gathered indoors first and had probably a couple hundred people. It happened to be around the time when, in the same county, one of the world's most devastating outbreaks of COVID-19 was beginning to spread. He wrestled over whether he should go through with it. I thought the hardest part was figuring out whether you could have 10 people get together, even at a six-foot distance, to bury someone according to Jewish tradition. Because you need the 10. You need the 10 adults to say the Kaddish prayer. The Kaddish prayer is an integral part of Jewish mourning rituals. It must be recited daily through the stages of mourning. Bass believes that these traditions are in place for the living. The Kaddish prayer doesn't mention death. It mentions lines that you have the hardest time believing in when someone close to you dies, which is that God exists, or that you praise God, or that things work out the way they should. And the reason for that is that 10 people are around you reinforcing that when they say amen, and they're telling you that there's a reason to keep going, even though it's hard. Traditional customs surrounding death in all religions are under attack in the age of COVID-19. Islam, like Judaism, prescribes that the dead should be buried as soon as possible following their expiration. Burial is preceded by the washing and shrouding of the body. But as Imam Rafai Arafin of the Berlin Mosque points out, that's been compromised by coronavirus. The problem with that is if you do that on a, on a very short time scale, um, you're increasing the risk and exposure to, to the people who may be performing the washing and the shrouding um, because the process itself requires 
them to be in very close contact with the deceased. Arafin and his partners in the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford are telling congregants to contact only funeral homes recommended by them. Places where those preparing the body for a Muslim burial are outfitted with proper personal protective equipment. With PPE being hard to come by during this pandemic, they've modified their custom. In that context, what we've requested is that the individuals who are doing the washing should actually skip the process of washing the body and substitute it with the ceremonial process of tayammum in which dirt is, is, is utilized rather than water. Allahu Akbar. Allahumma lahum warhamhu wa'afi wa'afa'anhu. He sees this kind of adaptation as a positive, proof that the religion isn't so rigid, that adjustments can be made to protect the living while accommodating the dead. Paul Bass went through this with his brother's burial in March. So we just decided in the end to take a million neurotic precautions down to having a rag for when we grab the shovel to put the dirt on the grave to cover the hands, to have that hand sanitizer right after, to avoid touching other people when you want to hug or get real close. Even though Bass didn't get to bury his brother in total accordance with Jewish tradition, he found something positive in the experience. He's inspired by adaptive measures afforded to him so he can move forward after Robert's death. While you lose something by not being able to follow traditional ritual, you gain something about the deeper, timeless human instinct to work together through difficult times. For Dr. John Woodall, that's exactly the right approach. I don't want to pathologize everything that's going on right now. I, I actually think it's a very fertile time for personal transformation, transformation in families, in our community, the nation, and the world, if, if we view it through the right lens. Woodall has a lot of experience with loss. He now works in Newtown. Before that, he worked with former Ugandan child soldiers and in other trauma zones like post-9-11 New York City. He says people tend to treat grief as something that's unhealthy, something you get over, and that's a missed opportunity. Grief is a form of love. We, we only grieve things that we love. So if we focus on the loss, then that's the experience of grief. But with a slight change of focus, we look at the thing about our loved one that was lovable. And what was it that made that person lovable? He says something that's come up a lot lately is how an adult should address grief with a child after they lose a parent or a grandparent. Woodall recommends telling a story about the deceased person and finding a way to connect their best qualities to the person left behind. Jimmy, let's say, you know, when you just did that with your sister, that was the kind of kindness that your grandfather used to show all the time. So that really has a huge value in the family. I'm just so grateful that you're keeping that alive in the family. It's an approach to grief with a feeling of love rather than loss. For Deborah Halverson, the unfolding global pandemic was a distraction from where she wanted to be, grieving the loss of a sister and caring for her elderly mother. She says that as those most uncertain early pandemic days wore on, she was surprised at how well her mother was doing, isolated in her Stratford nursing home. After all, the mother was used to seeing one of her daughters at least four times a week. I spoke with her on the phone as often as I could. I was able to do a video chat and actually a, a window visit with her. She looked good. 
Alverson first heard about her mother's illness on a Friday in April. I called the next day, and it had been two weeks since they had moved her roommate, who had COVID-19, out of her room. That Sunday, Halverson got a phone call at 4.30 in the morning. She was told that if she wanted to, she could see her mother for 15 minutes. When she got to the nursing home, she put on gloves, a mask, and a hospital johnny over her clothes. You know, I was told to not touch anything and to just, you know, no hugs and kisses, but I could hold her hand and, and talk to her, and you know, which I did. Halverson's mother, Betty Ann Belden, died two days later. She was 88. It was a second devastating loss for Deborah Halverson about 50 days after she lost her sister. On top of that, because she'd been exposed to COVID-19, she had to self-quarantine in her room for a couple of weeks. It comes over me and kind of, you know, abates a little and then comes over again. I have a feeling that, you know, once things settle down, if they do, that it's going to really prolong the grief process, this whole isolation and the virus situation. With memorials delayed in many traditions, those of us who have lost a loved one may find that sadness returns down the road. Almost a month after her passing, there will be a memorial event for Betty Ann Belden. Halverson says her family will gather to honor her mother in a sign of the times via Zoom. That was Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano. If you've been grieving the death of a loved one during the pandemic and would be interested in sharing your story with us, we'd like to hear from you. You can send us a message on Facebook or email where we live at WMPR.org. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. It's Connecticut Public Radio's end-of-the-year fiscal drive. Please support the programming you hear by making a pledge of support. Here are two members of my team to tell you more. You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm here with my co-producer, Carmen Baskoff. I'm Tess Terrible, senior producer of Where We Live, and we are both working and producing remotely. This has been such an interesting time to work at Connecticut Public Radio, and it's a financially difficult time for a lot of people, but we pride ourselves on doing this work and hope you've been enjoying this program. If you want to call and support us, you can listen to us at, or call us at 1-800-584-2788. That's 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. Yeah, and I'm here with uh, my co-producer, Tess Terrible, uh, on Zoom because we are in two different places. I am in my bedroom in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and I believe Tess is in, I'm not sure what room you're in, maybe your living room in, in West Hartford, because for the past, I guess, 
I don't know, three months now, we have been doing where we live remotely because of this uh, pandemic uh, COVID-19 that we're all experiencing right now. It's been a really strange and unusual time, but also a time that um, you know, it's been it's it's felt uh, very valuable to be working in public radio and to be able to bring you conversations, um, connect you with policymakers and experts who are able to help us sort of work through and make sense of what's going on in the world around you. And, uh, you know, on a program like where we live, take your calls and questions and put them towards the experts and policymakers we have on the show. So if that's something you tune in for every morning, you value all the other programming we have on on Connecticut Public Radio, like the Colin McEnroe show like morning edition and all things considered and that's where you turn to stay informed and the number to call is 1-800-584-2788 you can go online wnpr.org Carmen it's so interesting I was just thinking as you were saying where we're both located right now that you're in New Haven and I'm in West Hartford I don't remember the last time you and I were in the same room together but we still have been able to produce this show still been able to bring daily programming and still produce where we live. And it's just become business as usual for us. I feel so lucky to be able to be part of this organization during this difficult time of COVID-19. And we certainly appreciate all the support we receive from you, the listener. And we really hope you're enjoying this programming as well. It's been an adjustment, but we're happy to still be there for you and bring you programming every week with policymakers and even some residents from Connecticut. And if you appreciate this program, the number to call in is 1-800-584-2788. That's 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online at wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. That number again, 1-800-584-2788. And thanks.